The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world whose favorite baseball movie is Blake Snell, The Shell with No Hits On. I'm Jake Mintz, that's Jordan Schusterman, and that is what we call a horrible joke. Oh man, that is, boy, I, I, to, to call it a deep cut is maybe not even accurate because it is just so specific to, I'm not even going to acknowledge it anymore. Jake, it's great to see you. It's Wednesday. We have a lot of baseball stuff to talk about. We are going to talk about Blake Snell, uh, Blake the Snell, whatever we want to, we want to call him. Uh, Adam Wainwright, he did it. He got to 200 dubs. Shohei Otani got surgery that we still don't really know what it was. The AL West continues to be spicy. Ronald Acuna is absolutely amazing. We're going to read some of your emails. We've been getting so many fantastic emails to baseballbarbercast at gmail.com lately. Keep those coming. And then at the end, we will say goodbye to our latest eliminated teams, the St. Louis Cardinals and the Washington Nationals, officially out of the postseason mix. But Jake, let's begin with Adam Wainwright's eliminated St. Louis Cardinals because a couple nights ago, they were still in it. And Adam Wainwright was still pitching to get the Cardinals back to October. No, that's not what he was doing. He was trying to put on a show for his home crown at Bush Stadium, possibly one final time. I know you watched this game a lot more closely than I did as I was in Cincinnati watching the Twins and Reds, but I watched the highlights. I watched the ending. I watched the celebration. This is something we've been tracking for a while, and it was really freaking cool. I got to say, I, there were a couple big takeaways for me, but since you watched it closer, why don't you start us off? Number one, he was legitimately good. As good as Adam Wainwright could be in the year of our Lord 2023, he was that. It looked closer to Adam Wainwright 2021 wildcard game against the Dodgers than yeah. it did him getting obliterated all season long. Yeah. He or last threw, year. I mean, last he did, you know, he had a yeah. freaking even three last year, three, seven, one, but he threw 190 innings and it was like, all right, right. He's, he's fine. He threw so many curve balls. It was like incredible. He threw like 35% curveballs, looping them in there in any count, keeping the Brewers hitters off balance. The Brewers were the perfect lineup for him to do this against. And I'm happy that it wasn't a five innings, six runs, Cardinals offense scores 10. This was vintage, great Wainwright, seven innings. He threw seven innings, okay, against a playoff team. 
which is right. awesome. And we now, knew that Milwaukee was going to be the opportunity in terms of an opposing offense to really kind of go deep into a game, get a dub. But it was, I believe, his first scoreless outing of the season in his in his 21st start. Uh, and to go seven scoreless is, is really something. And it was a 1-0 game. So the only run for the Cardinals was a Contreras, Wilson Contreras solo shot, laser beam down the left field line. And so there was real tension in it. And it was clear that the Cardinals were not exactly intent on winning the game. Obviously, they wanted to win for him. But if they were trying to make the postseason, he's not coming back out for the seventh inning. There's absolutely no chance. And so they gave him another opportunity to throw that inning. They get one or two outs, I think, from John King. And then they toss the ball to Ryan Helsley for a four-out save, and he shuts it down. Here is an outrageous take I have, okay? I'm ready. The Cardinals being awful this year was a good thing for Adam Wainwright's goodbye tour. Mm. The Cardinals, Mm -hmm. by the time he got off the IL at the beginning of the season, were already cooked. The 2023 Cardinals were not bad because of Adam Wainwright. That's true. It was not his fault. And so if the Cardinals had been good and he had had a 7.85 ERA, this ends a lot more awkwardly than this. They are fake ILing him or they're moving him to the pen or they're doing a midseason goodbye and he gets nowhere close to 200 wins, right? Mm -hmm. And so for the non-Cardinals fans out there, obviously Cardinals fans would prefer to be in contention and be in October, okay, for the rest of us. The opportunity to give Adam Wainwright his due was very fulfilling and very cool. And there is no chance, no chance in the world, we are seeing what we saw on Monday if the Cardinals are in the mix. Because the last month of the Cardinals season has been completely dedicated to Adam Wainwright getting win number 200. You saw this, the final out of the game, I believe it was a pop-up to second base. And in the background, you see Jordan Walker in right field, the Cardinals five-year-old rookie. Doesn't look five-year-old. Doesn't look five-year-old. When the ball hits glove and and Wayno gets 200, you see Jordan Walker do like the Luis Gonzalez 2001 jump, like pump fake, full celebration. And to me, that is so cool. This guy born in 2002 celebrating for the guy who was drafted in 2001 or whatever, right? Right. That's a great call. And I want to say, I mean, listen, everything about Wayno and and there's a reason he is so popular that like all that said. However, Jake, the one more thing I want to say about this is Wilson Contreras. Okay. I think we need to take a moment here to talk about what this meant to Wilson Contreras. Because not only does he hit the home run that gives them the you know the one run that they needed for him to win, he is behind the plate catching Adam Wainwright. And Adam Wainwright gave him a lot of love after the game. He basically took a moment during his post game to be like, how about this guy, Wilson Contreras? And while I think the way that they handled him earlier in the season was ridiculous in the way that they publicly kind of threw him under their bus in a way that was probably not productive, Think about where he gets... Sure, the Cardinal season is, of course, a disaster no matter how the way you look at it. And you can criticize the decision to have him be their whole offseason plan and all that things. At the same time, here we are in September 
and you have Wilson Contreras catching every day. His OPS plus is exactly the same that it was last season, 126. He's worked his bat all the way back up. He's clearly earned the trust of his pitchers more than he had before. And for him to have that moment and to clearly be emotional about it too was really cool. And I know that yeah. there's still some Cubs fans that will roll their eyes at that. I'm sure there's still some Cardinals fans that will never you know, like him the same way, which is fine. But I really felt great about seeing him be able to do that. That was really cool. The Cardinals are going to be better next year, and he'll be a big part of it, and it won't be surprising. One last thing on this, the rarity of 200 wins. As baseball fans, we have an understanding that 300 wins is the mark. I believe there's only 24 pitchers ever to get to 300 wins. Mm -hmm. No one will ever do that again. I, I don't even think Justin Verlander will do it. He's at 255, I think. No. I don't think we will see another pitcher in our lifetimes get to 300 wins. The game has changed. And 200 wins is going to become that new plateau that people are trying to, uh, to reach. Garrett Cole is at 143 wins. He will probably get to 200. I feel pretty good about that. There is nobody else on planet Earth I feel comfortable about. I think Jose Barrios is the youngest pitcher up there, I think he has 83 wins. But do you think Jose Barrios has 117 more wins in his life? Well, maybe. And that's the thing. When I think about who could do it, um, I think more about who is durable more than who is good. And, you know, in some cases it's both. But that well, who is... Who's on a good team and durable? Who's on a good team and durable, right? You think about a guy like Max Fried. Honestly, like, I think about a guy like Logan Gilbert who looks like he is just going to throw 200 innings every year for the next 10, 15 years, you know? And so it's 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 guys like, and Barrios has been shockingly durable, but we've seen his performance fluctuate, right? And so that's really who you have to think about because while 200, even 200 innings a year is so rare, and that's a big part of it too, right? Guys aren't going deep into games. We do still have guys making 32 starts a season, right? Like that's still a thing that happens, but you need to have someone that is doing it basically every year for a decade to even have remotely a chance. And, you know, for, for contrast, I think it's a good transition to our next topic, which is Blake Snell. Blake Snell last night in his, uh, no, I guess, was it a no decision? Yeah. It was so, okay. Great example. Last night, <laughs> Blake Snell goes seven, no hit innings, gets a no decision. Uh, and so he is currently sitting at 71 career wins through his, you know, he's 30 years old. He might be on his way to win his second Cy Young. And he will be lucky to get to 150. And I would bet heavily against it. He's not even he's not even halfway to 150. Okay. And so that really puts it into perspective. And I know that, you know, pitcher wins, it's not about how we evaluate them about the pitchers and whether 200 wins means anything for the Hall of Fame. We're gonna adjust those things. It's not gonna mean anything. But we still like big round numbers and you know how much it still means to pitchers. And we're going to clearly be seeing kind of uh, an adjustment for what that means for guys in their careers. 100%. Let's talk about Blake Snell. How much of this did you watch? Uh, none. I went to bed pretty early last night, got home a little bit late uh, since I was driving back from Cincinnati. And then, yeah, I was just like, you know what? Blake Snell's no hitting the Rockies. I know he's not going to actually pitch this whole game, which we'll get to in a second. And they'll probably win at some point. And if not, that's funny because that's the Padres. But yeah, I didn't watch. I watched the highlights this morning and I was like, yeah, there's Blake Snell. He's fucking awesome. He has some of the nastiest shit in the world. Uh, yeah. So yeah. It was a combination of Blake Snell, nastiest shit in the world. The Rockies offense is awful. 
Oh, especially on the and, road. Especially on the road. And they Tatis made a great running catch late and whatever. The two hits I think Colorado got were off Josh Hader. They were both bloops in the ninth. So we did not see a no-no. Obviously, like, I think Blake Snell is incapable of throwing a perfect game because he walks people. I think he had three walks four. on the night. There Four walks. There was a moment where I thought they were going to lose and he was going to throw a no-no. <laughs> right? He said he a few of those. Yeah. Barely pitched into the seventh inning this year. So for him to get through seven was impressive. And I have been a Blake Snell hater. Um, I have a distaste for Blake Snell. And that is something that I am working towards uh, fixing. I don't want to dislike anybody, you know, except for Hitler. But <laughs> Blake Snell, for whatever reason, I have never enjoyed watching him pitch. The experience of him throwing a baseball and nibbling around the zone when he has like the best shit ever is so frustrating for me to watch. Spencer Strider's emergence has made me like Blake Snell less because Strider throws it in the strike zone and guys don't hit it. Now you could probably say, hey, maybe if Spencer Strider threw more balls, he'd give up fewer home runs and his ERA would be closer to Blake Snell's. That's fine. I'm not watching for your ERA. I'm watching for you to entertain me. Yeah. Well, and I would argue that Blake Snell, even in his wildness, can sometimes be entertaining, working his way out of his own messes, and the stuff is so even more than Strider. I mean, Strider's remarkably impressive, but a lot of what is makes him so amazing is he's just blowing fastballs, guy that best uh, past the best hitters in the world all the time, and he's throwing hard. And not that his off speed stuff isn't good, but Snell just has. I mean, everything he's throwing up there, it's just you can tell. I mean, guys just have no idea. He gets swings on pitches out of the zone, and this is part of the problem, right? Is that he can get swings on pitches out of the zone more better than almost any other, especially starting pitcher in the league. You know, you have relievers who come in throwing a hundred with the crazy slider, and and the and the hitters are so geared up for a hundred that they end up looking foolish. Like no Snell, it's all coming. Like it's just so many different pitches, and you're just getting these swings that you just don't see on starting pitchers multiple times in the game. First time through the order, second time through the order. It doesn't matter. Like, he is just – that his stuff is that good, and that's been true since he was in the minor leagues. So, I'm going to – the stats don't back that up, which is super weird. Mm -hmm. Because Snell's O-swing, the amount of swings he gets outside the zone, is mm -hmm. pretty low. Okay. For starters, mm -hmm. out of 48 qualified starters in the big leagues, he's 39th. Wow. Which okay, so that's not so. Just to be clear, that's basically swings and pitches out of the strike zone. How how much is he garnering those swings, right? And mm -hmm. it's low. Like he's right next to Giolito and Kyle Gibson, mm -hmm. which doesn't make sense. Maybe that's just because he's throwing so many pitches outside of the zone. Right. Right. And he, but but then again, you look at so right the chase rate. That's basically what we're saying is chase rate, but the whiff percentage is still through the roof, right? right? And so so like his zone percentage, amount of pitches he throws in the strike zone is the lowest among starters by a lot. He's at 32% <laughs> pitches yeah. in the strike zone, mm -hmm. okay? Dylan Cease is second lowest with 37%. The gap between Snell and Cease from one to two is the same between Cease and number 30. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Blake Snell does not throw pitches in the strike zone. We know that. What he is amazing at is getting people to swing and miss in the zone. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's frustrating. Now, is he great at getting people to swing and miss in the zone because 
he's not throwing it in the zone that often, maybe. But it's what, like he's whatever fourth the best, fourth yeah. best in the in the league at zone swing and miss, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so it's and just it, like, throw it there. It's right, and it's like, are you better off just standing there? Maybe. Uh, That's what I would do. It's I hard mean, to know yeah. if that the approach against him. Because you're right. I mean, I can't dispute the numbers that you say that, it, that actually the chase rate isn't actually that high. So maybe it is just like the chase rate in O2 pitches or whatever. Specifically, it might be something more specific where it feels like we're seeing it more often where guys are swinging at pitches out of the zone when he's getting the strikeouts. But it is, it is. I agree. It is It is a very strange thing. The other thing about Snell, and then I want to get to his, his kind of comments after the game. Um, we just talk about the Cy Young part of the conversation here. And... We, it's not over yet, but we could be heading towards him and Garrett Cole winning on, you know, bad teams, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all, obviously. You don't got to tell me. I, you know, Felix Fernandez is my favorite pitcher ever. But it is kind of amazing that the Padres and Yankees could be getting these Cy Young seasons and just not make the playoffs at all. Uh, That is a, a remarkable sequence of events. If I told you before the season that Blake Snell and Garrett Cole would win the Cy Youngs, you would say Yanks Pods World Series. <laughs> and Yanks Pods World Series, popular pick. Popular pick. And their two seasons have been so disastrous. Yeah. So below expectations. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine if Garrett Cole tweaked a hammy in May or oh Blake yeah. Snell wasn't this good this year? As he, like, last couple seasons, he's just been mid. The Padres would be even more of a catastrophe. No, I know. So it is it is like a great reminder that even when your team mm-hmm. is disappointing you at every turn, there are interesting things to see and watch. And mm-hmm. every five days, Yankees and Padres fans have gotten to flip on the television mm-hmm. and watch two of the greatest, most dominant pitchers in the world. And that's something to really cherish. Let's mm-hmm. move forward. Oh, you want to talk about his comments after the game? I missed this. Uh, Bob Melvin said, this is from AJ Castavell, uh, reporter on LB.com. Bob Melvin said, his conversation with Blake Snell was quick. Snell told Melvin it would have been tough for him to finish nine. So at that point, there was no reason to send him back out for the eighth. Follows up. Quote from Snell. I understand my body with how hard I was throwing today. It's just not worth it. I understand a no-hitter is an amazing accomplishment, and it's so hard to do. I also understand how much I value health. I'm just not going to push for that. It's an individual accolade. I also understand, this is what he's really saying. I also understand that in a month, I'm going to be a free agent. And there is no reason for me to explode my elbow or my shoulder for the sake of an accomplishment yeah. when I can make $150 million in totally. a couple of He's 100% years. correct. He's going to make right. this all kinds of crazy money, which is good for him. Um, but like, I, and maybe there was the same response with the Kirby discourse, but like, come on, people, we, we can't, let's, let's, let's keep our double standards. In check. Uh, all right, Jake, what is our next topic? Oh, let's keep talking about pitchers. Speaking of it's not worth it, stop pitching, uh, these games don't matter. Shohei Otani uh, underwent some sort of surgery yesterday, according to his agent, Nez Bolello. And while we don't know exactly what he did, the way that it was phrased is that he chose the procedure and the direction and plan that would most ensure or that would most likely ensure or help to make him feel like he will once again someday hit and pitch and most importantly hit as soon as the 2024 season begins here's the wording 
a statement from Nez Bellello, Shohei's agent, through the Angels, bizarre, you know, chain of command there, whatever. Shohei had, quote, his procedure this morning. Okay, that's the first thing. The final decision and type of procedure was made with a heavy emphasis on the big picture. Translation. I'm just going to translate all this. Translation. Shohei will pitch in the major leagues again. That's the big picture. That's what that means, right? Shohei wanted to make sure the decision, the direction taken, gave him every opportunity to hit and pitch for many years to come. There you go, right? Said Neil Elatrach, who is probably the number one elbow he's, surgeon he's in sport. He, he's James Andrews. He, I mean, he's lost the fastball a little bit just because he's what eighty four, older than that. I think he's <laughs> so Elatrach is lad, kind yeah. of the kind of the goat now. Mm-hmm. Quote: The ultimate plan after deliberation with Shohei was to repair the issue at hand to reinforce the healthy ligament in place while adding viable tissue for the longevity of his elbow. I expect full recovery and he'll be ready to hit without any restrictions come opening day of 24 and do both come 25. So yeah, but nowhere does this say Tommy John. Clearly not Tommy John. Clearly Ella Trotch just putting some tissue in there. (laughs) Clearly not. I don't know. Why do we? I just feel like there's a reason this doesn't say Tommy John. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's not that. Like, this is why this is so unprecedented. Everything with Otani is unprecedented. And the, the main takeaway here, we're going to talk about this in a hundred different ways over the next few months. So I don't really want to belabor it at this point. But what all we are going to find out is whatever surgery he had, right? And the part that is going to be hard to fathom, right? Whatever surgery he had, the fact that he will be rehabbing as a pitcher, we know that, that he will be rehabbing as a pitcher while also being ready to hit on opening day, is very difficult to fathom. However, Shohei Otani is very difficult to fathom. So in the same way that over the last three years, we say, how in the world is this guy holding up? How in the world is this guy physically capable? Forget the talent required to do this on both ways. How is this possible? Extend that to his rehab, and that's kind of where we're at. I don't know how it's possible. I don't know how someone could rehab as a Tommy John pitcher while also hitting every day or close to every day for a team that presumably will have just given him so much money. I'm, I'm excited to find out, though. I'm excited to find out. <laughs> as Kevin Gates once said, I got two jobs. I don't get tired. <laughs> James Andrews, only 81. I apologize to Dr. Andrews. Jordan, <laughs> let's take a break. Yes, let's do that. And when we come back, we'll read some emails. And then after that, we'll take a break. And then we'll come back after that and talk Phil Cuzzy, Houston Astros, NL West, Ronald Acuna. Goodbye to the Cardinals and Nets. Hey, everyone. Producer Chris here with a quick housekeeping note about our merch. Look, in Australia, we love clothes and almost always wear them. If you're like us and also enjoy dabbling in clothes wearing, then why not consider some official Baseball Barbercast merchandise? Whether it's a jumper you're after, which you would call a sweatshirt, a cap, which we would call an old hair hugger, or a shirt, which we would call a belly wrap, we have it all for you. But that's not all. Do you also like to drink water or caffeinated beverages? Well, that's great because we have mugs and bottles to help you quench your thirst too. To buy any of this merch, go to podswag.com slash baseball. The link is in the description of the podcast. And don't leave yourself clothesless this postseason. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. Let's pop open the mailbag and roll through some of your questions. Now, all of these questions are somewhat related to where we are in the season. So if you're listening and you're like, I only want 
to listen to what's happening in baseball now. None of that goofy goober stuff. Don't worry. These are all relevant. Our first one is from Matt. Matt sends a nice paragraph about how Jordan and I talk about mental health. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. The only way to get rid of the stigma is just to be like, I'm sad sometimes. And that's yeah. true. And if you put a microphone in front of us, like if we get to talk to people, we'll talk to people. <laughs> that's what sounds good. Simple as. On to Matt's question. What do you think is the best way to appreciate great longtime managers who seem to be on their way out of the league? With players, you can make sure to go to your local stadium, see them play in person, tune in for the broadcast, take in game highlights when they do something cool. But with Francona, Terry Francona, Guardians manager, seemingly on his way to retirement, I got to thinking about how you're supposed to appreciate legendary managers, especially when they won't be in the postseason in their last year. Should you buy tickets just to watch the manager sit in the dugout for 95% of the game? Do you give a standing ovation as they exchange lineup cards or make pitching changes? Do you hyperanalyze why he pulled Sam Hentges in exchange for Nick Sandlin in hopes of applauding Tito for finding some under-the-radar advantage that won't make the box score? How are you supposed to appreciate a manager before they're gone? Thanks again, guys. Keep up the great work. This is a great question. It does make me think when he's referring to the standing ovation during a pitching change um, is the point I've always made in a pro DH sense where it's like, are people going, everyone's like, oh, but we're losing the strategy. Oh, this is so terrible. I'm like, really? Are you going to the ballpark to like go crazy for a double switch? To which I say now, yes, we should have, when he comes out to say we're moving, like, like what happened in the Orioles game the other night when Brandon Hyde had to make all those goofy defensive substitutions in the bottom of the ninth with two outs because Aaron Hicks was apparently injured. Like that would be a time. Cause I love that moment where, where you're standing next to the umpire and the umpire's jotting it down. People just going nuts for a moment like that would be, would be fantastic. Umpires taking your order, your lunch order. <laughs> you're just, yeah. Oh yeah, we'll move him here. I'll have the French onion soup. What I want is, is let's say a guardians reliever gets crushed and Frank doesn't get an out. Frank Cohn has got to go out there and the crowd gives them a standing ovation. Eli Morgan obliterated. Terry's well, strolling out. That's the problem is it's like you might confuse it might confuse the players involved to where it's like we're cheering the fact that this guy's getting pulled or we're cheering the fact that this guy's getting pinch run for. So, I mean, the, and the real sentiment here is is interesting because people like Tito are truly beloved in so many ways by more than just, you know, Cleveland fans. Like that is someone that when do when do they we have we have another, I believe, email about, you know, gifts when players retire. And like that is something that has become the norm. But it's true. Managers don't necessarily get the same thing. I'm sure they'll do something on the scoreboard and the end of the home game before the game or at some point they'll do that. But it is a little different. There's the frequent situation we get where a retiring player will take the field first without anybody else and they'll get the moment where everyone claps for them or mm -hmm. they'll get pulled or something right it's harder to do that with a manager terry francona goes out for the lineup exchange and the umpire and the other manager don't go out yet. yeah it's just him holding the lineup but then it's a quarter of the crowd is in their seats and no one sees it that's the, the other thing you could do yeah the other thing that would be hilarious is a ninth inning pitching change he strolls out there and then all the players just go to third base or second base and he's just alone like by himself <laughs> and start. Yeah. But it, but that's also the, the other problem with that is like 
he might not be in a very good mood while he's making the pitching change. So True. it's like he's not in the headspace to like receive the ovation in the same <laughs> sense. Um, honestly, honestly, I think the answer is like get yourself thrown out. That's the time when mm. managers get the most uh, ovation is when they are going ham at the ump. And people, that's when people, that is really the only time when people are cheering a manager. And so Francona in his final game in the eighth inning, pretending to argue a ball and strike call, right. and the ump just heave hoeing him exactly. for the sake of a goodbye. The, the problem with that is like, that's not really on, like Tito's not necessarily known yeah. for his ejection. So it's like, it doesn't really fit in the same way, but I still maintain that like, that's when managers get their, their due. Like that's when people love him. Um, no one's ever rooting for the ump in that situation. So even no matter how wrong you are, the home crowd, no matter how wrong you are, uh, right or wrong you are, like the home crowd is always going to be enjoying it. So, Our next email is from James. The title is incredible. Uh, retirement Surfboards. I've been thinking about Miguel Cabrera's retirement tour. He hasn't gotten as many gifts as some of the recent ones, but one that he did receive, a surfboard from the Angels, felt very familiar to me. I was more right than I knew. Before you go any further, it's not a crazy number, but guess which team has handed out the most retirement surfboards? It's got to be the Padres. Here we go. Here are all the instance, uh, incidents I could find. 2012, San Diego gives one to Chipper. 2013, Oakland gives one to Mariano Rivera, which is super weird. <laughs> are you surfing in the Bay? That's not a thing, right? Are we stupid? Do we not know about Northern California surfing in the bit like that? Anyway, sorry. Continue. <laughs> it would make sense for San Francisco, right? They're just right on the whatever. My geography might be wrong. 2014 borderline case. Angels give paddleboard to Derek Jeter. I think that counts. Yeah, that counts. 2016 San Diego hands out two: one to David Ortiz and one to Vin Scully. Giving Vin Scully a surfboard is so funny. <laughs> All right, 91-year-old man. But like, catch some thing. waves. That's also how I feel about all of these. It's like, you think Miguel Cabrera is like in, posi in physical position to surf? Anytime. Dude, <laughs> the odds of Miguel Cabrera surfing someone who lives in Miami versus Vin Scully. Oh, okay. Yeah, no compared chance. to Vin Scully, I, I, of course. But anyway. No way. Easy. 2022, two more from San Diego, one to Pujols. Wanda Yachty. Pujols again. 2013, like. Angels to Cabrera. So yes, the Padres five. Additionally, James says, I can find no super modern examples of this in other sports. However, one Reddit post did have a list of retirement gifts given to a basketball player in 1989. And this player received a surfboard from the Clippers along with six different large collections of jazz records, a silver Rolls Royce. Holy shit. A Harley, a 24 foot sailboat. What a haul for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, seemingly the first ever recipient of a retirement surfboard. Yeah, here's the thing. Like, Miguel Cabrera is one of the 30 greatest hitters of all time or whatever. He's a, he's a couple tiers below Kareem. <laughs> so, yeah. like, that's not, I don't know. Like, even Pujols, who's, I guess, closer to Kareem's status than Miggy, um, I, it seems like we've, we're maybe past that level of grandeur for retirement gifts. You make a great point about Cabrera maybe receiving some gifts that he would never use. That surfboard <laughs> is either ending up in a garage. True and all the time. You know yeah. me. Frequently on people's birthday, they will receive some sort of sweet treats. Mm -hmm. And I 
there's someone who would send me cupcakes on my birthday every year, which is very nice. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to complain about being sent cupcakes on my birthday, but I don't really love cupcakes. That's just not my thing. And I was talking to my mom about it one year and she was like, well, what would you rather have? And I was like, I don't know, like olive oil. And so now every year on my birthday, my mom sends me a fancy bottle of olive oil, which is way better. And I just Very practical. It. You will absolutely use that. Right. So what would Miguel Cabrera want? Right. A really nice beach chair. Right. That's what I'm saying. I just feel like giving the retired guys like an activity to that degree, like a physically demanding activity. That's why paddleboard maybe works. And you could use a surfboard that way. Anyway, thank you, James. A very important research. Next email, Danielle. Sorry, Daniel. Hi, Jake and Jordan. Hope you're both doing well. I'm sitting on my brother's couch watching the Mets play the Marlins because I'm only watching the game because I'm a Mets fan. While there are playoff implications for the Marlins, I'm not sure I'd be watching if it weren't for the Mets being their opponent. With this being said, it made me wonder how the two of you choose to watch games down the stretch run of the season. What is your criteria for choosing one game over another? Do you focus on teams on the outside looking in? Those teams currently in position to make it the playoffs and are trying to hang on? I'm sure the answer is you follow them all. But for the thought exercise, what would your criteria look like? Great question. The first thing that he makes me think of is the fact that I absolutely was watching the Mariners in September when they were ass. Um, the point I have always made is once you've kind of committed, like that's your team, as bad as they are, and there are some cases, like I saw some White Sox discourse of people complaining. Like you can't complain. It's one of those things. Where it's like you, if you're going to opt to watch your bad team, like – you're doing it because you love them and because it's it's a comfort thing. And like I the way I always put it is that like I remember so vividly when the Mariners sucked all the time. That last weekend like I tried to watch every pitch cuz it's like I'm not going to have this for 6 months. Whether they're good or not, like this is something that has been so routine and so comforting to see my favorite players play a baseball game. And that's true if you're a Mets fan, like I would still want to tune in to watch Francisco Lindor. Because he's on my favorite team. And like, I'm lucky to have Francisco Little on my favorite team. I don't want to forget that. So in that sense, I get it. I, I totally get it. August? Fuck that shit. Right. August, right. There's no a time. Chance. There's a time when it's like, I am not wasting my time. And it seems like in some cases when a season is both such a disaster and so insulting to the fan base, like the White Sox case, it's like, I'm not enjoying watching anything involved here. It's, it's like a dying grandparent. At the Just end... Like <laughs> you want to be around, right? right. You want to experience it at the end. But like a couple months before the end, not fun. no way, man. That's just going to bum you out. Yeah, right. And so in this case, I think I totally understand where he's at. But as he mentions, like, you know, he's he's still watching the Marlins. He knows they're in it. So let's let's move our favorite teams aside. And our favorite teams are obviously, we're, especially this year, we're, we're both locked in. So what what is the criteria? The first thing I'll say is, and I think I mentioned this on here, I've just become a huge MLB big innings stan, truly. On MLB TV, like I've been using that so much, and a lot of it is because, especially when I'm in my living room, like I don't want to have to change around like on on the Roku. Like I, it, it they do a really good job of just putting up four games at once or three games at once, and like it, kind of doing the work for me, hmm. which has been nice. But at the same time, when we are in manual mode, well, how are you kind of handling it? There's usually two teams in the mix that are playing one another. It's it's that simple for me. That's on the big screen. The other things are on my computer. I've found myself watching the Diamondbacks a lot recently. They've been playing other teams that are around it, and yeah. they're very entertaining. Mm -hmm. So I, I put them on a lot. I cut out the best teams unless they're playing another playoff team. 
for our, our jobs at Fox Sports, I'm Mr. Braves, Mr. Phillies now. And so they're playing. And so I watched that last night, even though it didn't really matter. But I find myself watching a lot of two teams playing each other who are in the mix. I think it's yeah. pretty straightforward. And you usually get at least one of those. Sometimes it's overwhelming and there's like five or six of those games going on at once. But like you look at this week, like going on right now, and really Orioles-Astros is kind of the only game with like massive implications for both teams. Uh, it's really the only one, right? The rest of them, of course, there's plenty of others and it still matters to, you know, Cubs-Pirates still means a ton to the Cubs and whatever. Phillies Braves, you know, both teams that are in the postseason, but it doesn't really mean anything to Atlanta. Who's to say? So I would say that like that is, I agree with you, that that is usually the the priority. But it's it's kind of changed over the years. I mean, I will say that like I do like to more so, if I'm not watching big inning, like I am picking one and kind of committing to that. Uh, because I do feel like I get more out of that. Now, and I would also say too that the pitch clock has done wonders for baseball watching in that sense. It is much easier and more fun. Whereas before, like when you when it was slower paced and there was more time between pitches, you were more likely to be like, oh, this game's getting boring. I'm gonna switch to this. Whereas now it's way less likely to happen. Two more questions. This is from Jake. I promise I did not email this. And hey all, haven't had the chance to listen to today's pod, so sorry if this is a duplicate or you talked about it. Nope, you're in luck, Jake. If Otani was placed on waivers today, knowing he wouldn't play again this year, would a team claim him and pay him to have him in the dugout, sell jerseys, or get an exclusive negotiation period with him? Could it even be more lucrative in ticket and jersey sales? Where do you think he'd fall? Thanks. Love the pod. So we've talked about this a little bit when he was healthy. Now that he would just be a public relations marketing figurehead, is it worth it for the last couple of weeks? Could they sell jerseys of him if he's not on the 40-man? I don't know. Well, he would be on the 40-man if they claimed him. Well, he's Um, on the IL. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think he would still – you would have to be on the 40-man if you claimed him. I guess the 60-day – again, it doesn't make sense because I don't know a situation where you claim someone that's on the 60-day. I'm sure it's happened, but I don't know exactly. Can you sell jerseys like that? Yeah. Uh, With a week and a half to go, probably not. I mean, you know, the real reason, whatever, this isn't what you're asking, but the Angels would be truly punting any chance and be pissing him off to a, to a truly epic degree. Um, also, like, I don't think so because I don't think they, I think Otani wouldn't show up, you know? Like, I don't even think, I guess well, if they could make surgery. him show up. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know, but that, that would be my thinking too. I don't know why he would agree. Why he barely does anything for the angels? Why would he? Why would he be like, yeah, I'll show up and hang out in the dugout with my new teammates? So the reason he would do that is he loves ball, and if a playoff team claimed him, and it, it's different because he just had surgery. Let's say he yeah. didn't have surgery and it was just some sort of like you know out, the oblique injury that he yeah. just needed to rest through, right? Yeah, and he could just not be doing rehab and follow around a playoff team and kick it. <laughs> he would, I would do that. I'm sure he would do that too. If, if, if he could just be on the twins and mm. just chill with them, I think he would do it. And I think the twins would do it. Right. I, I think a lot of these playoff teams would do it just to have Otani around. And I do think you would make the money back. Honestly. Well, that's, and that's the the real calculation here is I, he's probably still owed like, even for the last week and a half, I think he's making 30 million. So probably like what, like 800 grand. 
something like that? Is that worth having him be on your team? It's also funny because it's like if you claim Otani on waivers, do you tweet out a graphic that says like, welcome to Kansas City, Jolay Otani? I it's guess. Just him, but it's a picture of him like over a dugout railing, which is because that's what he's going to be doing in a hoodie. Squad. In a hoodie. Like you can't oh. do like you do a press conference. Like, I don't know. By the way, just quickly, literally 10 seconds on this. The Marlins claimed Matt Moore. Good for them. I don't know why. I guess Matt Moore was making. Uh, maybe you missed that. Yeah. The Guardians put Matt Moore on waivers uh, and now he's on the Marlins. I don't know why they didn't put Reynaldo Lopez on waivers too. Like he's been pitching well, but I guess Moore was making more money. So they're trying to save, you know, scraps. Anyway. Um, great question, Jake. Uh, we will continue to ponder the Otani waivers thing for the next 10 days. Last question. This is from Josh. The Trop. Hello, Jake and Jordan. Just listened to the pod where you briefly touched on the Rays new stadium rendering, which Jordan, by the way, you saw my tweet. Oh, Can't yeah. Have the Wander Franco jersey in there. That's just. Yeah. That's, not I good. mean, come on now. That They, they talk about like, Shouldn't it be like to me if I'm I'm in this job and I've it's like if I was about to tweet something to however many hundreds of thousands of people like I would just look at it one more time and be like uh, anything here oh no okay oop okay uh, new stadium rendering you mentioned that it would be on a strike a, a site where the trop currently sits I always thought the sneaky real reason the raise attendance is bad is because the trop is actually in St Petersburg and getting there is such a hassle. Because there's so much traffic. Comparison, the Lightning were top three in attendance last year and playing what looks like actual downtown Tampa. They also won a bunch, but so have the Rays. Happy to see the Trop go, but confused why they would build it in the same place. Signed, the Yankee fan elated at the idea of never watching my team play in that stupid place ever again. Number one, Jordan, you and I need to get to the Trop before it dies. We've never been. True. We got a few that years. That is a must. We got a few years left. Um, I believe 2028 is the target for the first year for the stadium. So... Uh, We've said this before. Stu Sternberg, the owner of the Rays, is an owner and likes money and whatever, wants to save it. But he's not an idiot. And so there's a reason they're building on that site instead of in Tampa. The stadium's going to be smaller. I'm sure they think that the stadium experience is going to be more worth it for people than sitting in a dingy dome. Now, granted, this also looks like a dome, so it just has windows, which I guess is important. No, 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 no. There's a difference. There's a way to make. Now, I will say they should probably use Globe Life as a what not to do from a aesthetic perspective. And we'll see how they do that. But to me, remember, all of any new ballpark and any, two, any of these development plans has as much to do about what they're building around the stadium as what the indoor experience actually is like. I'm sure any version of a new stadium, whether it is in Tampa Bay or St. Petersburg, will be more uh, enjoyable than the, the, the trop from, from from that is what our understanding is going to be. But it is about so much more than that. And to your point about Sternberg, this is not an accident. And honestly, if he's figured out that I can still build it here and still make a ton of money, which again, what's another big part of that uh, equation? Being really cheap with payroll and being good anyway. Like that's another reason why Sue Sternberg is still making a lot of money. And that you can argue with that and say that that's a problem for baseball. And that's totally fair. And I, I, I'll hear that if not agree with a lot of it. But there's so much more than like, I know that people look at it and be like, oh, this, they want to have people at the game. And of course they want to have people at the game. They have a great team. They have players that deserve to be supported. Like all those things are true, right? At the same time, there's so much more that goes into that. It's not just about, oh, I wish we had 25,000 people at the game instead of 15,000. It's just about, will this make more money? And the answer is probably yes. 
All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk Acuna, AL East, and hey, Phil Kazay. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast on this Wednesday, September 20th. Jake, when you teased this the last couple segments, you referred to us talking about the NL West and the AL East. That's not what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the AL West. Did I say <laughs> that? <laughs> you were, you were, well, you really, you really uh, were, were throwing people off the scent. Let's talk about the AL West quickly before we get to Ronald Acuna Jr. who plays in the NL East. Jake, there are 10 days left in the season, roughly, and the Houston Astros sit a half game ahead of the Texas Rangers and Seattle Mariners, who are currently tied. Over the remainder of the regular season, the Seattle Mariners will play Oakland one more time today, and then they will play the Rangers three times, the Astros three times, and the Rangers four times. When we looked at the schedule back in June, we looked at this and we said, holy shit, this is going to be crazy, and now it is set up to be as wild of a last few uh you know weeks as we could possibly imagine to have a three team race like this and the difference between ending up a division winner and a third wild card is really unlike I can't remember anything of course it's different when you have three wild card there's a lot of th- things that are new to this postseason dynamic which is exciting and uh the stakes are are really something and while Toronto has certainly been playing better and they are in this conversation as well this AL West race is going to be something special. None of these teams have played especially well this month at all. And while every fan base is thinking, how in the world have we not lost or gained more ground, whatever, it's because all three of them have been shitting their pants regularly over the last three weeks. And so that has been, uh, which is, I guess, maybe makes it slightly worse of a fun race to follow. But I still think these three teams are all very good. And uh, I'm excited to watch. And let me tell you, Jake, go O's. Go O's. The Orioles... Who, of course, they're they're fighting for something too here to win this division. But coming off their their celebration, going into Houston and winning those first two has been uh, a pleasant sight for Mariners and Rangers fans. I know the Orioles are eleven and a half games up, ten and a half games up on the Astros. I know that the Orioles are only two games behind the Braves, the Braves, for the best record in the league. I know all these things. But to see the Orioles go into Houston and take the first two games of that series, okay, the first in dramatic fashion, the second in dominant fashion, but the offense clicking on all cylinders against the Astros. To see Ryan O'Hearn beat them, my mind is like, oh, the Astros might be in trouble now. It was the first time that I really am, have felt worried about the Astros. They're losing to the Orioles? And then I have to remind myself that these Orioles have 90 five wins right <laughs> Ryan Presley does not blow saves like that that is not something that happens and it's not like the Astros offense hasn't really been been showing up uh did you see the tweet I just uh, sent you <laughs> yeah talk about it so uh Jeff Lunau the disgraced uh former general manager and architect of the Houston Astros who was exiled from the sport after the can-banging scandal and other organizational inadequacies, uh, tweeted, congrats, Sig Medal and Mike Elias on the Orioles uh, playoff clinch. 
You both deserve it. You built it the right way and it will last. So the right way, I know what he means. He means, uh, you know, sustainable, but I don't need Jeff Luna telling me what the right way to do anything. <laughs> well, is. You know it's what I sustainable mean? and lose 100 games three years in a row. <laughs> you did it. Woo. Uh, and then Michael Elias quote tweeted. Thank you, Jeff, which I don't know their relationship now. I know Mike used to work for Jeff Lunau. The GM of the Orioles used to work in Houston. It's kind of a lose-lose because if you quote tweet it, you're saying I you exist and whatever. And if you ignore it, then it's like a story, right? So it's I think Michael Elias. Uh, well, it's more this of a yeah, no. I'm not, I'm not trying to make too big of a deal out of this. I just was like, that is an interesting yeah. Twitter interaction. Jeff Lunau also now just the owner of. Uh, Mexican soccer team and I think another team in Spain. Um, that's what he's really um, mostly tweeting about. Who's going to win the AL West? <sighs> so I think still the Astros, but okay. this Rangers Mariners seven games is really going to be, I'm going to write a little bit about it today at Fox, how what the dynamic we are about to watch is can the Mariners pitching compensate for the mercurial occasionally really lackluster lifeless offense and can the rangers offense compensate for just a cataclysmic pitching staff outside of jordan montgomery we're about to find out i am not watching any of the mariners offensive innings that is not entertaining (laughs) i'm only watching when the rangers hit against the mariners good pitching Oh, right. Well, okay. Interesting. Because, I mean, obviously you'll see. It's like, well, maybe the Mariners can score against, you know, Cody Bradford. But it is. it will be fa- – Just this is very, very exciting. And there's a few other series. There are a few other uh, matchups that we have seven games left against each other. But none of them are nearly as important um, as, as this one, obviously. So I'm, I'm excited, terrified, uh, all of those feelings at the same time. Uh, one other – do you want to talk about Phil Cozzi quickly before we move to Acuna? Yeah, so in last night's game between the Astros and Orioles, Phil Cuzzy, the home plate umpire, was all over the place. He called a high strike on Jose Abreu from DL Hall, clearly above the zone. Orioles catcher James McCann did not even try and frame the pitch. He demanded <laughs> called it a strike. Uh, Alex Cintron, the bench coach for the Astros, was chirping and hollering at Cuzzy, and the camera cuts to Cuzzy, and Cuzzy... You can, I tweeted it. It's very clear. Read his lips. He says, fuck me. Well, fuck you. And he <laughs> kicks him out. And then he nods his head and goes, yeah. And I, if I was a player or a coach or a manager or a front office person, I would hate the idea of umpires being characters. They are not supposed to be part of the game. They are supposed to be the adjudicators. Yep. And facilitators facilitators. They are there to make sure that everything else runs smoothly. However, I am not any of those things. I am someone who watches this for sport, okay, for entertainment. And Phil Cuzzy as a character is filling the Joe West void. Joe oh, West, yeah, we still cowboy. have we still have characters, right? Lance I know, Diaz. but Joe West Joe yeah. West was number one. Like he was the oh, number yeah, one of character. Of course. And I think the number one spot in the umpire entertainment rankings is unfortunately Angel Hernandez. And the only reason that he's the most famous umpire is because he's bad, right? And he's not the worst. Like, he's like a 35th percentile bad umpire. Yeah. But everyone knows his name, and so he's famous. Phil Cuzzy is also not very good at the act of umpiring. But as a character, boy, oh, boy, is he entertainment, oh, a- yeah. entertaining. 
Fuck me. Fuck you. Get out of here. <laughs> that. And then he's the only guy who checks for goop anymore. He's the only mm-hmm. one who cares about goop. And he's got this like wet, m- like mullet type hair. And he's just so bada bing, bada boom. I tweeted this out. He should be a Sopranos character. He's yeah. literally from Newark. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, he checks every amazing. box. And I agree. Like all the best umps are the young 36 year olds whose names you don't know. Right. And that's good. I think umpire has, umpiring has gotten a ton better. Over the last 10 years. But even with the wave of retirements that we had recently, there's a few hanging on that are still that are still making it about them. And I agree with you. Is it that should never be the story, but sometimes it's just like we're here to be entertained. And that was really entertaining. Do you want truth or do you want to see Phil Cuzzy heave ho somebody? I know what I want. Uh, let's move on to an actual star of the sport. Not Phil Cuzzy. Ronald Acuna Jr. Ever heard of him? So he misses a few games. He left with, I believe, like calf tightness on Friday. Misses the rest of the Marlins series where they got swept. He returns to the field on Tuesday night against the Phillies. And just as if there was any doubt, he was like, hey, remember those two? Like, let me just quickly make up for the weekend that I missed with a couple homers and another steal. Uh, bringing his season total to, I believe, 39 home runs and 67 <laughs> stolen bases. Yes. The old 39, 67, uh, easy peasy, lemon squeezy OPS up to 1014. He is leading the league in runs. He's leading the league in hits. He's leading the league in total bases and OPS plus and OBP and all. He's the best. He's amazing. I lo- Wow. What a player. The second homer was hit out to center and it 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 was a different kind of Acuna homer where you could tell he squared it up but he kind of finished in a way where it wasn't like and it was it was it was one of the ones that reminds you of how fucking strong this guy is that he can just kind of barrel it and not even get that full extension and just boom out to center field he's amazing i think he's going to win mvp honestly more comfortably than people think that is my, if that's a hot take, sorry. This is no disrespect to Mookie Betts. If you think Mookie Betts is the MVP and you vote for him, that's fine. But I think, I, I actually do not think this is going to end up being that close. This feels like from a narrative perspective, the year of Ronald. And I think that that will help as well. Every year has a player and this year it is his. That is a great way to think about it, Jordan. You're good at this stuff. Mm. You should mm-hmm. stick with it, man. This podcasting <laughs> stuff, it's cute. Now, here's the thing. Uh, so he's one away from 40 home runs. He will get there. He will homer at some point in the next 10 days for sure. So everyone's like, oh, he's going to get to 40-40. <laughs> but he's at 67 steals. So to say he's at 40-40, yes, he will be only the fifth player ever after Jose Canseco, Barry Bonds, A-Rod, and Alfonso Soriano to do that. Yes, but that is, you are underselling. The point is that he's going to be at 40-70, which no one has obviously got anywhere close to. The only other 40-40 season, it was A-Rod 42-46 uh, steals is the most for him. I'll have a couple of the comparable seasons, but what do you got on 40-70? So I'm happy it's 40-70 because with the new rules, if he was at 40-40 flat, you could easily create and concoct a narrative that was like, he only got to 40 steals because of the new rules. Totally. And I think it is true. He's only going to get to 70 because of the new rules. Yeah, I agree. But you cannot tell me. You cannot tell me that this man would not have gotten to 40. He, this is, there's, this is there's a 40-40 no, season. It's, it's a 40-40 <laughs> season, and it feels real, and it compares 
to the other four that we've ever gotten, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so because of that, era adjusted, the 70 steals is legitimate, whatever yes. that means. Yep. Okay. And so because of that, I'm so happy he blew way past the steal number so that you cannot doubt the validity of it at all. Totally agree. And and just quickly, historically, um, in terms of that many steals and that many home runs or anywhere close, it's really just Ricky and Eric Davis. So Ricky had three seasons of 20 homers and 60 steals. The most notable one, 1986, 28 homers, 87 steals. 20, he went 24-80 in 1985, 28-65 in 1990. And then the other famous one, of course, Eric Davis, 27 homers and 80 steals, also in 1986. Uh, Jake, let us wrap here. We are going, you know what? We'll, we'll say goodbye to the Cardinals. Look, on Friday, we're going to say goodbye to more teams because the Tigers and Guardians are about to get eliminated. So we will say goodbye to the Cardinals and Nationals on Friday. So thank you all for joining us for this episode of Baseball Barbercast. Thank you, Chris Tyler, for producing. Thank you, everyone who emailed us, baseballbarbercast at gmail.com. Keep those emails coming. And we'll be back on Friday uh, with more uh, podcasting action. Jake Mintz, thanks for joining me. I'll talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you, Phil Cuzzy. Serious XM Podcasts. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.